Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005. Hey, it's uh, time to talk uh, football now. We head to the UK and catch up with our good friend Ben Ransom from Sky Sports in the UK. And uh, Ben, uh, a big match has just finished in the EPL. Chelsea 2, uh, Liverpool 2. I've got to say, I thought that uh, Liverpool were, were lucky to have the full complement on the field after the first minute. Do you think Sadio Mane uh, got off lightly because it was the first minute when he threw that elbow? Oh, yeah, I mean, definitely. It, it, he gets off lightly, as you say, uh, because it's so early on. Um, what was it? Uh, literally a matter of seconds into the game. Um, if that's, yeah, any time after that, I think the referee takes a different view. I mean, the referees in these big games often do take a more lenient view on things. I think they try and give players the benefit of the doubt because they don't want their decisions scrutinised as they are. And it, it only really happens in the big games, these kind of calls. Um, so I get why he kind of thought, oh, it's a bit early, I don't want to get involved in that. But, yeah, I mean, with VAR, there's not really an excuse now not to look at that again. Um, so, yeah, lucky. And, I mean, on, on the balance, the draw may have been fair given the fact that the game was so end-to-end at, at times for both teams. Chelsea had that great spell when they fought back. And then, obviously, Liverpool, just at the very end, perhaps could have created something. So, in that respect, a fair result. But equally a result that doesn't really do much of a favour to either side, does it? You're in the city, just keep on winning. Uh, Romelo Lukaku, how good. Uh, left right out of the side after his comments about wanting to potentially return to into Milan. Yeah, I mean, look, this has uh, been a huge talking point over the last, well, 48, 72 hours here. Um, he did an interview with our colleagues at Sky Sport in Italy, so you can imagine the flavour of the interview was about his time in Italy. And yeah, it emerged from that, that he wanted to go back to Inter. He's, things aren't really working out at Chelsea. He's not happy. And you can understand why. I mean, look, it wouldn't have taken a genius to work out that things weren't going to plan because they spent a lot of money on Romelu Lukaku. They bought a player who in Syria for Inter was one of the most fearsome strikers on the planet because... If you think back to when he was last in the Premier League with Manchester United, Ricardo will tell you, there was a lot of disappointment about uh, him fitting into that team. He didn't quite live up to the expectations that United had for him being their superstar goalscorer. Ultimately, he moved on, did really well, did really well for Belgium as well in the interim too. And he kind of seemed to have taken a step up. So coming back to Chelsea, I really thought that was the missing link in them becoming Premier League title. Certainly, challengers, but I thought they'd win it this year because if you think back to last year and all the chances that Timo Werner and others missed and squandered, I just felt that this new improved Lukaku was going to bury all of those. Yes, he's had injuries, but whatever it is about their style, Chelsea under Thomas Tuchel, their number nine striker, whoever plays in that role, just does not score many goals because they're asked to do a different role for the team and it's something that hasn't quite clicked. And on that basis, I can understand his frustrations because, as I say, he was a player expecting to come back to Chelsea, a club where he'd been previously, where it hadn't quite worked out, as an improved player to finally right that wrong. And actually, it's going wrong all over again. Yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it, Ben? Because it, I actually made this point. Uh, when he got injured, the next, I think, three or four games after he got injured earlier in the season, 
Chelsea probably had their best run of the season. It's it's almost like they play better without him. Uh, they they kind of almost play that Man City sort of style where there's you know sort of four or five attacking players, a false nine uh, type type uh, player, and it's lots of quick movement, and that that seems to suit them better than you know sort of having to play with the big man. Yeah, I I think you're right, and you could you could level the same thing if you compare them to Liverpool as well. Because if you think about Firmino's role over the last few years, I mean, he, he very rarely gets in amongst the goals, but he's often involved within the build-up, isn't he? The way he drags players out of position, Mane and Salah have been the two standouts, clearly, for Liverpool. For City, you're absolutely spot on. They've, they've not had this central striker since Aguero got injured really a couple of years ago. So they've been moving pieces around, and Guardiola has come up with this extremely fluid, really dynamic and really dangerous front, yeah, three, four, five who can tear opponents to, to pieces. And now you think, where would a number nine fit in at Man City? So for Chelsea to, to buy Lukaku, a player that, let's not forget, he revealed in this interview as well, that City were in for um, a little over a year ago. So clearly Guardiola saw, saw that he could play a role within a team like this. But Tuchel's trying to play the same style, and he's, not, he's just not getting the best out of what is their most fearsome attacking asset. So I find that very strange, but I understand Lukaku's frustrations. Um, Tuchel's system, for whatever reason, he's, he's going to persist with. He likes the system where he's fluid. I mean, Lukaku not in the side at all today for the game against Liverpool. So he was clearly making a point there. It'll be fascinating to see where this goes from here, whether it's going to be a bit like one game out, I've made my point, you've made yours, let's come back together and try and make this work, or whether um, the, you know bridges have been burnt and there's there's just no way forward for... Lukaku at Chelsea and ultimately they try and cash in I mean I, I don't think Inter would have the cash to be able to buy because I'd imagine Chelsea would want every bit of the, the money they spent on him back um, but I suppose you never know and Chelsea may be thinking look cut our losses and we'll go after Erling Haaland obviously the most talked about striker in Europe in terms of a target for all the big clubs City United and you know the likes of Real Madrid obviously very interested in him this summer so yeah it's a really fascinating situation. I'm I'm re- now really intrigued to see what the next step is. It'll be uh, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what happens next. Uh, and it, it reminds me a little bit of the situation at Arsenal with Aubameyang. I mean, uh, you know, he's obviously fallen out with uh, the manager there, Arteta, uh, to the point that he hasn't even been in the matchday squad for the last three games that they've played, and he's said to be training away from the first team. Yeah, um, and yeah, I mean, he has no future there, clearly. I mean, they, they, they want rid. There was some talk. I mean, I, I guess it was probably fairly agent-led and Arsenal-led that maybe he might be offered an escape route by Barcelona, given the fact they're short of numbers of players. But look, I, I think financially, that's a very unrealistic prospect. Um, I think Arteta just had enough with him. It's happened time and time again. You think Arsenal would learn their lessons because they give players these... Ma- they, they get them towards the end of the contract. They give them a massive deal because they, really, they they fear losing them more than they fear paying big wages. So Ozil did the same thing. Then Aubameyang, they were fantastic a couple of years ago. But since they signed the deal, they're not the same player. I don't know what it is, but they can't replicate that hunger. And Aubameyang has been given chances this year. I mean, look, he started the lion's share of the games early in the season. But he's missed lots of chances in those games. He's not scored anywhere near enough goals. He's not done enough for the team. And then once again, Arteta, finally, young manager, feels that the time is right to, to effectively have that power struggle. And you have to say the manager's won because Aubameyang's taken out the side. He's disciplined. All of these young, hungry players are given their opportunities to play. And again, a more fluid system. He brings back Lacazette, who's asked to play this more withdrawn 
number nine role where he drops deep and brings all the other players into play. And sure enough, they start scoring goals. They start looking impressive. They start looking creative and they start winning games. So it's absolutely the right call for the manager and a massive victory that I, again, I think means that Aubameyang now will leave in January. I think Arsenal will be looking to offload him, whether that's on loan or whether they can try and get some money. But ultimately, to try and get some of his wages off the books. And I think they'll then try and get through to the end of the season and they'll look at, again, themselves replacing him. Because let's not forget, Lacazette's out of contract as well. So they may look to keep him, but equally, it may be that they look elsewhere. Um, but in the short term, certainly, I don't see a way back for a Aubameyang, to be honest. Ben, just on a side note, um, today was the first time in 30 years where they've allowed standing fa- fans or des- designated standing areas in the stand. Do you know how that went down? I mean, I think it's, yeah, I mean, look, the early um, impression seems to be it went down fine. I mean, it's something we've seen in Europe uh, a bit before, haven't we, in terms of the safe standing in Germany, particularly. They have it, they've had it for years, and I think it's something the Premier League has been trying to get back to. Um, it's taken a long time, obviously, because very sensitive issue in this country given the tragedy that happened at Hillsborough and other tragedies I have to say but that was that was the main one off the back of Hillsborough in 1989 um, was when the Taylor report came out was when the Tory-led government led by Margaret Thatcher clamped down on I mean they they were clamping down what they perceived as being hooliganism but actually that wasn't the issue but but what was an issue I think people do agree is that the stands and the stadiums in England needed an update and by making them all seater, it's, and the Premier League money kind of coincided with coming in a couple of years later as well, um, it transformed the game, that's for sure, into the modern game we love. And I, th- I think it is right that we go and now we explore these options because safe standing is just about numbers and it's about, yeah, effectively, you stand in front of a seat, don't you? I mean, I don't know if you've seen the, uh, the, the way these stands are erected. I mean, I've been and to, to a number of grounds in Europe and stuff that have these kind of things. So you effectively are given the space of a seat where you are able to stand. And, you know, it's as safe as anything because you're all in rows. There's barriers between every row. There's no chance of crushing or anything like that. Um, and it's just more liberating. And it's safer than, again, having been to many games, watching football over the last 20, 30 years of my life, where, I, I mean, I'm in a tent to travel away from home when I go and watch matches. And I can't remember sitting down very many times anyway because you just stand in your seat. So it's a much safer way of doing it. I'm pleased that finally the authorities and the rules and the lawmakers in England have been able to bring this back. And I think it's a positive thing. I think what you'll see is all of the clubs, uh, once they've done these trials, I think all the clubs in the Premier League, Football League, etc., will bring back standing in, a, in an area. And I think it will be, yeah, as I say, I think it's a, it's a really good thing. It can only help the atmosphere. Uh, now, Ben, of course, uh, this, this result this morning, two all between Chelsea and Liverpool, does help Manchester City, doesn't it? They've got a 10-point lead now over Chelsea. Liverpool are 11 points back, but do have a game in hand. Uh, but they were helped a little bit, I, I can't help but saying, by the officials against Arsenal. I think Arsenal were probably the, played the best game I've seen them play under Arteta, and they were very unlucky not to get an early penalty uh, for that challenge on Odegaard, which VAR didn't tell the referee he needed to go and have a look at the monitor. Yet a little later on, a penalty that looks a lot less like a penalty, they do tell him to go to the monitor. City get a penalty, Arsenal don't. That's sort of where the game changes. Yeah, I mean, it is tough. VAR has become, again, a bit of a talking point. I think, basically, at Euro 2020 in the summer, um, VAR, again, was used and seemed to work better. There seems to be a bit more of a leniency 
there seemed to be less of the microscopic picking over, brushing of feet and contact and all that sort of stuff, which we'd seen the Premier League the year before, whereby if I take you back to those days where any contact whatsoever was just instantly a penalty because, you know, even though it's a game where people do naturally come together, it was always a judge that it was essentially going to be a penalty. Um, that was too far. They tried to then rein it in at the start of the season. So they tried to let the game flow more. They tried to not give those marginal calls always as penalties. Then we had that rush of them a few weeks back where actually all the top clubs, didn't they? Uh, they all got one on the same weekend. It was really bizarre. Um, and then in the last few weeks, we've had these kind of games where one decision for some reason is not given or not looked at and another one is. And I think that's got to be a challenge uh, for the VAR because, you know, it was only a couple of weeks ago, I remember watching an Arsenal game where there's no, you know, in my mind, Xhaka should have been sent off. I think it's pretty obvious. There was the one with Kane. You know, his tackle mm. should have been sent off a few weeks ago. But again, not given those decisions. And it just seems we've got a real... I think it's an identity crisis, really, because there's a there's an inconsistency in the decision-making on the field, and there's an indecision and uh, an inconsistency from the VAR official. And that cannot be right. The VAR, whoever that is, has to be strong enough to be able to tell the referee to look at stuff. And also, when they go and look at things, the referee shouldn't always automatically have to change his mind. I don't think that. If he looks at it and goes, well, yes, I can see that Odegaard's foot just got in front of Edison and whatever, but actually, I think that it wasn't enough for foul, and he got enough for the ball, right? And he sticks by his decision. Then that's fine as well, because refereeing's always been about a viewpoint. But the problem now is we're going back almost to that kind of microscopic detailing and viewing of football, and it's it's just decisions, big decisions are getting made incorrectly, and that's when fans struggle. I think the inconsistency. Yeah, I think inconsistency is the word. The fact that the referee's not going to the, the screen, the VAR screen, and, and looking at it himself for both of those decisions, I think if he had, you, you could live with it because it's the man in the middle making the decision. But, uh, yeah, it's an interesting one, Ben, and uh, no doubt we'll, we'll continue to talk about VAR throughout the season. A, uh, just before you go, mate, um, I hate to bring it up, but we kind of need to ask you about the Ashes. Uh, what's the reaction been at home? Um, I mean, look, as far as the Ashes are concerned, I'm looking forward to when we next play them. Um, uh, this, this particular series has been horrific. The only, the only saving grace for English men and cricket fans up, you know, in this part of the world is that it's on overnight, so you can kind of ignore it. Uh, and it's on over Christmas when everyone's got other stuff going on and there's loads of football. So, so it doesn't really happen. It has been awful. Yeah, it's been, it's been awful. I mean, nothing short of embarrassing. Going into the series, I feared it would be like this. Um, and, and yeah, it's turned out worse than even anyone could be feared because there's not even been really a moment. I mean, maybe a couple of sessions in the whole series so far where England have been competitive. Apart from that, it's been an absolute, it's been abysmal, um, abject, obviously. I mean, you might remember my folks lived in Adelaide for a few years. They're mm. back now, by the way. But, you know, we've got some family out there. So, obviously, you can imagine the sorts of messages from my friends and family that have been coming over. And, and, and all I can do is laugh, genuinely. All the quips about English batsmen, they're spot on. It's just been, it's been utterly demoralising. Um, I don't know how they get this back now. I mean, there was talk of, obviously, Adam Hollyoak was supposed to be going in to try and, like, you know, freshen up the coaching staff with Chris Silverwood now, um, isolating under Graham Thorpe, his mate, a man, obviously, Hollyoak, played with him at Surrey now. He's been out in Australia. Then he's a close contact, so he can't join up. I mean, I... I don't blame the England players for just wanting to get home, but they've got to show a bit of metal. You know, if you're a professional sports person, I'm afraid, it's a lonely business, isn't it? And I know COVID makes it even more lonely, but they've got to show the same metal that 
for example, India, to be fair to them, there was a lot of controversy away the, the way the series ended between England and India um, when it felt like the players, the Indian players, they were using COVID almost as an excuse not to play that final test match at Old Trafford in Manchester and go to, you know, play in the IPL and all that kind of thing. And there was an element like a frustration in England then that we felt the Indian players were kind of playing up their fears a bit so they could get out of dodge, essentially. But they showed enough metal in the rest of the series to be really competitive in difficult conditions. England have just not shown the same competitiveness in Australia. I think that's a real shame. And I, look, there's already, you can imagine, the inquest has started, even though we've still got, we've still got um, a couple of games to play. Um, there's still the inquest here, and there's already the looking at the county game and how it's restructured and whether we need the 2020 and the 100 and all the one-day games getting priority. So, yeah, um, I think the inquest is going to last a little bit longer yet. And uh, Chris Silverwood will be getting his UB40. Well, you would have thought so. I mean, if not, I mean, there's something really wrong, isn't there? I mean, whether Joe Root stays is the other one. I mean, look, it's not, I don't think he's to blame because he's been the only person in the last 12, 18 months among the Indian batting group you could say deserves his place. And I don't think his captaincy has been that bad in many ways, but equally, you know, he might be, again, forgiven for thinking, do you know what, I've had enough of this. I don't want this anymore. He's, you know, you can't be in a batting lineup where you're coming in at four, for example, and you're in within two or three overs, like every time. That cannot be the case. He needs some of his fellow batsmen to step up and get some runs. And he needs to be able to build partnerships. And for whatever reason, I don't know whether it's mental strength, fatigue, ability, preparation, something seriously wrong. Probably a combination of a number of factors. But yeah, I mean, given that English cricket and test cricket was in such a great place a few years back, I mean, this is abject. Yeah, abject indeed. Good stuff, Ben. Hey, thanks for coming on and having a chat, mate. Uh, good to chat to you in 2022. We'll catch up with you soon, eh? Yeah, my pleasure. Happy New Year to you all. Yeah, indeed. Thank you and you. Uh, ben Ransom from Sky Sports UK. They're talking Premier League and uh, Ashes. And yeah, don't don't think the uh, English cricket team are going to want to go home, are they? They're probably better off staying in well, Australia. I've seen um, a few uh, mock petitions to make them do a 14-day uh, quarantine when they, when they get back to England <laughs> as well as punishment. So... <laughs> Could you imagine that? Could you imagine that? Oh, I did see, you know, you got the rapid antigen tests, whatever they call them, you know, for COVID, the quick tests. Mm. And the, and here's somebody saying that, you know, hey, if you want a quick test, just play the POMs. Because um, <laughs> that's the way it's going. It is 23 past eight here on SENZ Summer Breakfast with Mitch McLennig and Ricardo Ball. Uh, thanks to the Chemist Warehouse. Great savings. Every day, remember our Kenna's higher phone line, 0800 150 811. Give us a call. The Kenna's higher.